0: Father in heaven, we thank you for this evening. Lord, you are the most high God. Your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. You are altogether not like us, Lord, and, and uh, we're thankful for that. We give you all the praise and glory that's due your name. Your transcendent nature, Lord, overshadows everything. You are in all, through all, for all. And Lord, even with all that, we can know You personally, Lord. That You're here with us. That You inhabit the praises of Your people, Lord. And so we thank You and praise You. We give You all the glory. This is all about You, Lord. We surrender to Your authority. We lift You up, the Most High God. We ask you, Lord, now to speak to our hearts through your words, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. We present ourselves to you now as holy living sacrifices. We ask that we'd have good soil in our hearts, a willingness, Lord, to receive your word and to be doers of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Can you say hello before you sit down? Alright, come on in, have a seat, and grab your Bibles, and if you need a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the seats, and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 9, and uh, we'll be spending our time tonight in Romans chapter 9. That'll be about as far as we'll get tonight. As we've been working our way through the book of Romans, been looking at Paul's discourse to the Romans, we can call it all about grace, all about what God has done, all about the miracle of our salvation, the goodness of God to bestow upon us the greatest thing that we could ever experience, and that is the unmerited favor of God. The plan of God didn't just start when Jesus came. It didn't just start when the New Testament started. This plan was a plan that was in, in motion really from the foundations of the earth, but. As recorded in our Bibles, we first see the plan in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after sin entered into the world and God began His plan of redemption to restore mankind to Him. And uh, He had a particular group of people that He was going to use to bring about that plan. Can anybody tell me who those people were? Calvary Chapel people? No. The Jews. The Jews. So, this plan that God had set in order, He chose people to bring about that plan. And I I wanted to read to you this uh, amazing promise of God that He has given To mankind, really. And in the Bible, if you read it at first, it may seem like he was just giving it to one person. Abraham. But uh, if you'll notice, as we read through this, this covenant that God made with Abraham, at that time his name was Abram, we'll realize that God chose a particular person to bring about blessings to everybody. And that's how God's election works. Have you ever heard of that word, election? Have you heard heard that God elects people or chooses people? Well, we're going to deal with that tonight. But uh, in order to do that, we have to understand how and why He chooses. So, first and foremost, He chose a person, and his name was Abraham. And God said to Abraham, Abraham in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, he says, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, and go to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. So there's a promise I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God chose a man to work his plan of redemption to bring a blessing to all mankind. And within that promise, he said that he will bless those who bless the people who are involved in bringing forth this plan, the plan of redemption, and he will curse those who hinder or try to interfere with the plan of redemption. And that's one of the reasons why we have an Israeli flag in our lobby because of this verse. Because we believe it's important to bless Israel. We believe that as we bless Israel, that we're doing and conducting ourselves and acting appropriately according to God's Word and that He will bless us. And we don't ever want to curse Israel or hinder Israel, get in the way of what God is doing uh, uh, in Israel. Does that mean... Israel is God-fearing, right on believing people. No, they're a secular nation for the most part. But that doesn't discount the fact that God is working still in and through the nation of Israel. So when we come to the book of Romans, for our text today, we now shift gears in the outline of the book that started with Paul talking about sin. Chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. He was talking about sin, and the conclusion is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. However, in chapter 3, verse 21, he begins to talk about salvation. And as he talks about salvation, he points out the fact that salvation is outside of mankind's ability to do anything to get salvation. Salvation comes through God doing a righteous work, not us, and inviting us to partake of His righteous work through our faith. So it is by grace we are saved, meaning it's by unearned or unmerited favor that we're saved, not of works, not of what we do to be saved, but it's by what He has done in order for us to be saved that we're saved. So chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 5, I've encouraged you guys to live there. Live and breathe those verses because they talk all about our salvation, justified and God being a propitiation for our sin, and the righteousness of God imputed to us, and and Paul is a master of using the Old Testament as a master swordsman to demonstrate that God's plan of redemption was in the Old Testament and was an Old Testament uh, plan, not just a New Testament plan. And he he begins that he points to Abraham, and it was accounted to him as righteousness because he believed God. So he points to Abraham. He points to David and looks at how David said that blessed is the man whose sins are not imputed to them or accounted to them in their account, but they're forgiven. So the Old Testament points to this. And, and then as we, we finish um, looking at salvation through the end of chapter 5, we come to chapter 6 and then it talks about well, well what do we do now that we're saved? What does a saved person do? What does it look like for a person who's on this earth, but yet redeemed and heaven-bound, and in a relationship with God in what's called being born again? How does that person live when the world's not their home anymore and when sin is not their boss anymore? So we looked at that. It's called sanctification. We try to point out the difference between justification, which happens in a minute. The moment we put our faith in Christ, our salvation is sealed that moment. We are forgiven. We are washed. We are heaven bound. We are in a relationship with God. We're a new creation in Christ. All of those things happen the moment we put our faith in Christ. But after that, then we go through this process of sanctification, which is... What happens for a believer when they live their life on earth as a saved person? God goes to work in the life of that person to transform the person into the image of Christ. To make that person more congruent with their position in Christ through their practical walk with Christ. Because we're not perfected yet. We're forgiven, but we're not perfected yet. So the life of a believer is the life of God working in that believer to make him more like Christ. So how does he do that? He does that by the working of the Holy Spirit in the heart of that person to separate them from their self and the things of this world. And So we looked at that. We looked at the sanctification. And we ended last week in chapter 8. To me, one of the most quotable chapters that we have in the Bible uh, for many people it's a favorite chapter and it begins saying there's no now no more condemnation to those who are in in Christ Jesus so positionally because we're a position in Christ there's no more condemnation it ends with the apostle Paul saying there's no more separation nothing can separate us from the love of God so that's our position is set it's established it's in Christ it's what he has done it's immovable and shakeable. and because of that we're free then to live for Christ without feeling fear and in that chapter it, it tells us that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear but a spirit of, of power and a sound mind and and that we can Call our Heavenly Father Abba, which means Daddy. And it's personal, personal term of affection and uh, care that the dad has for the child. We saw that in that chapter that all things work together for good to those who know Christ and are called according to His purposes. We're more than conquerors. All that understanding of, of this position that we have in Christ And so now Paul continues this this discussion, but now he talks about something that is very important for us to understand, and it's this word called sovereignty. God is sovereign. Something about God that we need to know and apply to our life is that He's sovereign, meaning that He is in absolute control of everything that's going on. Meaning that that's why we can be more than conquerors because God is working out his plan of redemption still and he's going to carry it all the way through and what we see that can maybe uh, cause fear or concern or worry or anxiety when we come back and realize that God is sovereign over all things and he's working all these things out together for good that He, He, he not only has a blueprint of how he's working things out he also has a schedule of how he's working them out working them out and and really the, everything is coming to a perfectly designed ending which is the rapture of the church which begins the seven-year tribulation on the earth which ends with him coming back, Jesus coming back with the church to earth to establish His kingdom on earth for a thousand years, which then leads to after a thousand years, the new heavens and the new earth. New earth, God's restoring all things. So we should have confidence. His sovereignty should allow us to look at anything that's going on in this world and be able to understand it and say, all things are working together for good. Everything is falling into place just like God has said And Paul, the master swordsman. He slices and dices with his spiritual sword. The misconceptions, the false teachings, the attacks of the enemy, all these things. Now in this chapter, he begins to slice and dice all these things that can come up against a believer but you have to know that chapter 9 10 11 it's about sovereignty as we look at the nation of Israel chapter 9 10 11 is about Israel the nation of Israel chapter 9 is about Israel's past chapter 10 is about Israel's present chapter 11 is about Israel's future and so the bible is jewish jewish centric and Israel, the land of Israel, centric. To understand your Bible is to understand God's plan for the Jews. To understand your Bible is to understand God's plan for the land of the Jews. So, with that, you guys ready to go? Let's look at the sovereignty of God and how the Apostle Paul transitions from talking about our sanctification to God's sovereignty. So chapter 9, verse 1, he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, meaning what he's about to say is something that's very heavy on him. You can pick that up as you're reading it. And because of that, you see a big, big shift, a big transition from where we left off last time, where we have this big crescendo in him explaining how nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ. And now he has this huge burden. He has this huge burden because he's realizing that the the greatness of God's salvation, the amazing grace of God, he's realizing there are people who don't receive it. And it it bothers him. It's maybe like some of you that have friends or family members that are not saved. And not only that, that you've shared the gospel with them and they say no, or they just blow you off, or they're not interested in what you have to say. Paul, like many of you, is greatly grieved by that. And he's saying that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness. In other words, saying the Holy the reason he's he's so grieved is because the Holy Spirit is grieved. So if you lose sleep at night, and by the way, I do, because the particular people that I know and care about that aren't saved, I lose sleep because of that. It bothers me. And, and I, I see that this is something similar. This is something the Holy Spirit does in a person's heart. So in verse 2, He says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I, I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. So, the question is, is Paul, is he really saying that he would be willing to be accursed from Christ, which he would know meant that he would be willing to go to hell, for his countrymen, his fellow Jews, to go to heaven. I don't know if he means that. It could be that he was just expressing the depth of his heart and how badly he wanted himself to have his fellow Jews saved. But he shares a similar heart that Jesus had. Because Jesus was accursed for His countrymen. Jesus did take on a curse for us. Cursed is every man, uh, Galatians 3, 3, I believe, that every man that hangs on a tree. The, the cursing that Jesus took when He was on the cross, he, He's sharing that same sentiment. Suffice it to say, the reality of what the Bible says about someone that rejects the grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, is absolutely horrendous. And he's speaking about a nation. A nation of Jewish people who, in general, that doesn't mean there were, were not individual Jewish people that were saved. There were. He was one. Right? So it's, he's talking about the nation. The nation and, and the heads of the nation's religion were the ones who killed Christ. And they're the ones that were killing the disciples. They're the, the ones that were threatening Paul and chasing him around on his missionary journeys. And instead of him being mad at them, his heart was absolutely torn apart, broken, because... They are rejecting so great a salvation. So he says in verse 4, Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God? And you might want to note that the service of God. Why? Because in this chapter, when we talk about God's election, electing people, or you could say choosing people, it's very important to distinguish the fact that in this chapter, He's not distinguishing people for salvation. He's not choosing some for salvation and choosing others for damnation. It says right here, He has chosen the Jewish people for service, for a particular service. That's what He's saying here. And because of that, He's given them, it says, uh, He's given them adoption. He's adopted them as His people. And then it says, the glory, so God was being glorified through them. You might remember the glory of God was in the, ta- in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. That's where the presence of God was, where the Ark of the Covenant was. The glory of God was leading them in the, in the wilderness. A pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, that was the glory of God. And the whole point was God chose this nation, starting with cho- choosing a person, Abraham, to be a blessing to all nations, didn't we read that in Genesis 12? We just read that, 12:3. He chose him to be a blessing to all nations. And so he adopted them. He not only adopted them, he shared his glory with them. And then it says the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. You might want to underline and circle that too. So he gave them the promises. So let's think about the promise he made to Abraham. That he would bless him. That he would make a great nation out of him. And ultimately, that he would not only give them land, but that all the nations of the world would be blessed. So look at verse 5. Of whom are the fathers and from who, that's the patriarch, starting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. So that, that's the end game, that Christ would come through the Jews. Christ would come through the people. And that's how all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. They were going to be blessed with redemption and salvation in the Messiah that would come through The lineage of the Jews. So it says, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed, what does that say? After that? God. Look, that's one of the most powerful scriptures in your whole Bible of a proof text of the deity of Christ. The Apostle Paul is calling Christ God, straight out. And then he says, Amen. So, we good so far? Okay, I'm glad you're good now because it's going to get a little crazy here. But it is not that the Word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. That's the hinge for us to be able to interpret the whole chapter. What he's writing next is going to be in regards to what he just said. So it's important, first of all, to know who is he, who is he writing this? Who is this directed at? It's directed at the Jews who have become hard-hearted towards the things of God. Stiff-necked, unable to hear or see or understand the spiritual applications and implications of what God has given them through their laws and through their covenants and through their feasts and all these things are all pointing to Christ. But he, he's writing, remember, we just talked about, I, just, I wish my fellow Jews, my countrymen, I wish they would be saved. I would be accursed from Christ if they would be saved. And now he's saying to them, and that's an important interpretive part of this, is you have to know who he's, who he's referring to. He's talking about those Christ-rejecting Jews. And as he's addressing them, he's making the point that not everyone that is a physical descendant of Abraham, or in other words, has a DNA that says Jewish on it, not every one of those who are physically Jews are actually Jews in the way that he's referring. Can you turn back with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 3 for a moment? Because he, he addressed that same thing in this scripture. Romans 3, 3. He says, Romans 3, 1, let's start there. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Meaning, an ordinance that a Jew would do, which would give them great pride in saying, we do this outward ceremony to note that we are Jews. But he's saying, what good is that? In verse 2, just to do that, while at the same time ignoring the spiritual aspects of having a relationship with God he says there's still an advantage to that chiefly because to the jews were committed the oracles of God so that's a huge blessing and a huge advantage for in verse 3 four what if some what if some didn't believe what if some Jews didn't believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. Turn back with me. So this is what he's talking about. And this is this is what can be said is if you have these Jews who are rejecting God, even though they were given all the things of God, but now they're rejecting. Well, does that forfeit the plan of God? Does does it show? Could somebody use that as a testimony to say, look, the oracles, the laws, everything was given to the Jews. The Jews were the people in whom Christ was going to come, and they have rejected as a whole, not individually, as a whole, as a nation. So does that mean that, that God, he, he failed? Did God fail? Did God mess up? This is, this is like things we may, might say, when something happens in our life, that's a surprise. Or to use the expression, the rug got pulled out from under us. Or we got ambushed. We're cruising around in life and things are going great and we love God and we read His Bible. And then something happens, terrible, and we're we're shocked. And we're saying, well, how could God do that? Well, maybe God's not real. Maybe this whole thing is not real. So that's what He's saying. So in verse 7, He says, Nor are they all the children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. So, did Isaac have a brother? He did. He had a brother, Ishmael. And now, the Apostle Paul is going back to Old Testament, he's using the sword of the Spirit to slice and dice these misconceptions that people may have, in particular has God failed because the Jews are not continuing on in the things of God and there are many, especially as a nation, are hearted towards the things of God, and he's saying and he's giving an example, he's saying not all that are physical descendants of Israel are true Jews, because there's a thing called spiritual Jews everyone who's accepting of the fact that Abraham, and through his seed, was brought the Messiah. A true Jew, he pointed out earlier in the book of Romans, is one who receives Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So he's making the distinction to the fact that it's possible for one to be genetically associated with Abraham as a Jewish person, but be disassociated with this salvation because of a hardening of a heart, of a rejection. And what he's pointing out, what he's getting at, is that salvation is by faith and not by physical inheritance. A Jewish person would think that they are going to heaven because they're Jewish. Paul's dealing with that. He's also dealing with those who would say that I'm going to heaven because I keep the laws. I follow the rules. He's dealing with that as well. He's dealing with what he's pointed out earlier, that is by faith and not by works. It's not by law keeping, but it's by Jesus keeping the law and us putting our faith in Him. So he goes back and he points out Isaac and he shows a a distinction between his brother Ishmael who wasn't of the promise why what's the difference between Ishmael his brother and Isaac what's the difference so Abraham had this promise the problem was Abraham got really old and so did his wife they got re- really old. How old? They got old, so old that they were past childbearing age, way past childbearing age. And so Sarah says, hey, look, we got this promise that God gave us Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 or verse 1 through 3. We got this promise. How could that ever happen? Physi- uh, physically, biologically, it can't happen. So I got a plan. So we have Hagar our maidservant, go into her and have a baby with her and their baby, that will be the promised child, the child of promise. And that happened. And that baby's name was Ishmael and Ishmael grew up. But God didn't recognize Ishmael as the promised child because he had nothing to do with that. That was a work of man and is a, a, also a Example or illustration of works and how people use works or human effort to try to be right with God. But God reaffirmed the promise and actually miraculously, spiritually brought forth a son through Sarah even though she was past childbearing age and his name was Isaac. And so Isaac was the son of promise. He was the son of faith. He was the next in line, in the line that would bring forth the Messiah, not Ishmael. And so he's pointing that out. and He's he's pointing out there's two brothers, he's saying. But both of those brothers, just because they were Jewish or from Abraham, of the seed of Abraham, just because that didn't mean that they were both part of the promise. He's, he's really dealing with the issue of just because you're Jewish doesn't mean that you're going to be saved. There's one way to be saved, and it's through Jesus Christ, nothing else. So he's pointing that out, all the way back in the Old Testament. He's pointing out the difference between the law and grace, between... Uh, between a, a person's ability to do things, to be accepted by God, versus a person's thrusting themselves upon the grace of God and what he's done to be accepted by God. There's a lot of pride with the Jews in regards to their heritage. He's dealing with all of that, and he's imploring them to look and to recognize, in a way, in a way point out their own failure to realize their own need for Christ. So in verse 8, he says, That is, those who, are of the, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. The distinction between Ishmael and Isaac. In verse 9, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Quoting from Genesis 18. So that was the promise. And that's important to, to recognize here that that's what he's dealing with. So in verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. Now he's using another example. So this example then is Rebecca. She had twins. And it's pointed out that she had two nations in her womb. It's very important to understand that. So in her womb was... Jacob and Esau, or Esau and Jacob. And these two were two nations, we're told. So now he's dealing with this. Both Jewish, both brothers, both of the lineage. But look in verse 11. It says, For the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election or choosing God's sovereign right to choose or elect might stand. That's important too, because this is part of the promise. The promise won't change. The promise is secure. The promise... Is going to happen and going to be fulfilled by God. This is the emphasis that's going on. Even though in Paul's time that the Jews rejected Christ on a, on a whole, he still brought a, a, a brought his plan to fruition. So again, in verse eleven, for the children not yet having been born, having done, having nor having done any good evil that the purpose of god according to election might stand not of works but of him who calls so that's interesting so now what's being pointed out is there's there's a choice between two people and it's pointed out that this choice was a choice not for salvation but for the purposes of fulfilling God's plan in service. So people are elected or chosen by God for specific roles to serve the people of God, but mainly to serve the purposes of God. So you can say that he elects people to do that. So he elected Abraham in the same sense. He didn't elect everybody else in the whole world at that time. He elected Abraham for a particular role of service, and that would be to be the father of the Jews who would ultimately bring in Christ the Messiah. So he's pointing out that now he he made another choice. He elected one of the twins over the other twins, not for salvation, but to bring about the promise. And he, he did that through his own sovereign... Election to his own purposes pointed out that they didn't do anything to earn their ability to have that role. And if you follow their story, both of them were pretty messed up. But God chose Jacob to fulfill a particular role. So there's, there's your election. He's elected to do that. So in verse 12, it says, And it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. That was the choice of choosing Jacob instead of Esau. Esau was a little older, like seconds older. So in verse 13 it says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So that's the one verse that haunts people sometimes. Because if you don't understand what's going on and you read... God chooses people to hate and then other people to love. The, the implication is that He chooses people. And, and a five-point Calvinist would say this. And, there's, and, and if you're talking about Calvinism as a system of belief in regards to election and choosing and predestination and all those sort of things... They're, they're not all the same either. Not every, There's different types of Calvinists, so don't, you can't put them all in one bucket. But suffice it to say that uh, if you're a Calvinist and you ascribe to the five points of Calvinism, which uses the acronym TULIP, you can look that up just like the flower, then they would say that, that God actually makes a person that doesn't have any choice or chance to go to hell forever and, and burn in hell forever. So they're like God makes them in their mother's womb and there's nothing they can ever do about that and they're going to end up going into hell forever. But just on the surface, the understanding it just doesn't sit right with me because the Bible says that God wishes that no man would perish but all would have eternal life. So I don't know how that would work. But I do understand there are verses like this that people can read and say, wow, you know, that's why I'm a Calvinist. This, is, this, this chapter is one of the biggest reasons people end up falling into or being part of Calvinistic type of teaching. So the, the thing is, in, in, for biblical interpretation and understanding, first thing is you have to read it and, and say, what does it say? So it, it says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. It says that. The second thing is you have to ask yourself, what does it mean? That's where it gets a little more difficult, the interpretation part. And that's where, first of all, you have to look at the context. We've been doing that. That's why I've been trying to lay out the context for us a little bit better to get us to understand at this, this verse. So first of all, the first thing is we have to understand that what's, when, when it's referring to Jacob and Esau, this is a quote from the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament that we have in our Bibles. And, and that, those two individuals, when Malachi said this, he was referring to nations, not people. So that helps a lot in our understanding of, of God's election and His choice. So he is talking about nations, not people. And then we can go back to what we've been looking at in the book of Genesis and and realize that God chose one of the two brothers, not for salvation, but to fulfill Abraham's promise, to keep that going. So that doesn't mean that Esau didn't have a chance to go to heaven and have a relationship with God. It didn't mean that at all. It just means that that. Jacob was chosen to be the one, for whatever reason, we don't know, but he was chosen to be the one in line that would then eventually have the sons that would form the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, and then they would eventually form a nation, and that would end up leading to Jesus coming through that line and being a blessing to all nations. So, So it's talking about nations, and it's talking about these two nations. Something happened. There was a change that happened biblically with Esau and God's relationship with them. And that's why in Malachi, 1,500 years later, after Genesis was written, there was a different thing going on with the nation of Esau, who were called the Edomites. So Esau, his descendants, he started marrying women who were enemies of Israel, the Hivites and the Hittites especially, arch enemies of Israel. And so they, they, they were told not to do that, and he did that. And he became an arch enemy of Israel. So later on, what happened was that the Edomites actually became enemies and were often at war with Israel. And what was actually happening? Do you remember the promise in Genesis twelve three? I will bless those who bless them, and I will what? Curse those who curse them. Now, why did he say that? Because God was working through the Jews to bring about His redemptive plan. So the Edomites, who were descendants of Esau, they were going against that, which means they are actually trying to thwart the redemptive plan of God for mankind. It's it's kind of like this. so Just a little analogy. So, say that I had $100, let's say $200 in my hand, and I said, Richard, will you take this? That Richard. I'm choosing you to take this $200 to go to Brahms and buy everybody ice cream. So, whatever, yeah, however, could be that. So I chose him. Now, does that mean I hate all of you guys? Wouldn't it kind of mean I actually love you guys too because he's going to go and get you ice cream? See, that's how, that's how Israel was, they were chosen Abraham was chosen to be a blessing to all nations. Now, what if Richard went over there and he bought ice cream for everybody? And as he's crossing the street, he gets jumped by thugs. And they steal the ice cream. Or they try to, but they're not successful because the police department's right there. And the police come and they shoot the bad guys and and we, and we still get our ice cream. But see that that's how God's election works. That's a, a silly example. Well, actually it's a pretty good example because that Brahm sounds pretty good. But but it see a Calvinistic type of understanding as far as election is someone gets chosen at at the expense of another person, not to bless the other person. But we don't, that's not what God's election is about. God's election is about choosing someone to be an instrument of God's blessing to the rest of the people. And in our case here, it says that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. is because later Esau came, he was like those thugs that were trying to ruin our blessing of ice cream that came against that. So God's going to hate and be against those people who come against his plan. His redemptive plan, God is going to be against them. And that's what this is saying. That's why he hated Esau. We don't have time now, but there's, there's several verses that re, refer to that. Uh, Obadiah chapter one, verse 10 and 11 is a good one, to say that it, it demonstrates that the Edomites became cursed because of their treatment of Israel. And it actually honored what God said in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Bless those who bless them, curse them who curse them. So we must move on. So in verse 15. Can I say one more thing? Evan, you got to hear this, man. (laughs) I'm just kidding. So, so think about this. See, he, he's pointing out to his particular audience, Paul writing this, the hardened heart Jews. And as he's pointing back to Esau, he's also indicting them. They are a type of Esau's. They are a type of rejectors of the promises of God. And not only rejectors, interferers trying to stop, trying to hinder, trying to get in the way. And so he's actually indicting those particular people, those Jews, those hard-hearted Jews, who's really the target of this uh, explanation. Okay, you can go. So in verse 15, then watch this. He says, For he says to Moses... So now he's going back to Moses. And he says to Moses, he says... I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So what's he talking about there? So he's quoting from Exodus 33, this conversation that God was having with Moses because Moses left the children of Israel and he went up, on Mount Sinai, to receive the Ten Commandments. And while he was gone, the Jews built a golden calf and started dancing and worshiping the golden calf. And so when Moses came down, he's like, what are you doing? What in the world is going on? I can't leave for a second without chaos breaking out. And God said, I'm going to wipe them out and start over again and Moses said no no similar to what Paul is saying here don't wipe them out don't do that and Moses was pleading with God and God sent a famine and killed I think three thousand but not all of them died but here's what here's what he's getting at God chose and here's that word election God chose at this time not to wipe them out. Why? Because of his redemptive plan in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. He was still working that out. So when it says he had mercy and compassion, what that it didn't it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about he he was just patient. He didn't wipe them all out, but he's going to be patient with them. He was going to deal with them in a particular way because of that Genesis 12 promise that he was fulfilling. He's working to fulfill that, and so he's going to do it through the Jews, and so he didn't wipe them all out. And and he's saying that I can use my discretion, I can do what I want because I'm God, to have mercy on whoever I want to have mercy on. And that's what he's referring to here. So in verse 16, it says, So then... It's not of him who wills nor him who runs, but it's of God who shows mercy. So it's God's in control. He's sovereign. He's working things out. So we, we can apply this and look at our society now and say, God, why are you allowing this month to happen? How did that happen? How do you allow certain things to go on and laws, certain laws to happen? How are you allowing that to happen? And you might think, well, well, God, you're not involved anymore. Your plan didn't work. It's failed. And what God was saying is, hold on, buckaroo. I know what I'm doing, and I'm working out a plan. You don't realize what I'm doing. And Peter kind of maybe gives us a hint. He said that God is long-suffering, not wishing that anyone would perish. So there's part of it that he's he, he's wanting more people to come to repentance. But ba- basically what he's saying is, look, you don't have any idea the fullness of all that I'm doing. So you just need to trust me. And, and when I allow something, I'm doing it for a sovereign purpose. When I wipe something out, I'm doing that for a sovereign purpose. That's what he's saying. So in verse 17, it says, For the Scriptures say... To the Pharaoh, so going all the way back to Egypt when they had the children of Israel for 400 years in slavery and in bondage. And God raised up Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. He said, no, God sent the plague. Hey, Pharaoh, let my people go. No, he sent a plague. He did that how many times? Ten times. (laughs) You guys awake? Okay, he did that ten times. So now he's looking at that that issue with Pharaoh. So what was going on with with Pharaoh? So scripture in verse 17 says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. So we can apply that and say, well, I'm not going to use any names or particular people, but why does God let this person rule a nation? Why is this person in charge? Why do they have so much power for God's sovereign purposes? He's using them. It's not against the plan that he has for us. It's not contra to Christianity or anything like that. He's using all those people, your bosses, the president, government officials, every he's using all that to bring about his sovereign purposes. So we can't look at it and say, God's failed. Look at California, God's failed. No, this is all part of his plan, of his sovereign plan of working things according to a certain pattern. So he uses Pharaoh as an example. For this purpose I raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all of the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, And on whom he wills, he hardens. So it's very interesting when you read through the book of Exodus and you read about Pharaoh, there's two different words for hardening. And the first word that's used for hardening is his rejection and rebellion when Moses came to him was him rejecting God and going against God's plan in Genesis 12.3. He was doing that. But then later, when it says God has hardened his heart, it means God firmed his heart. His heart was in a certain position and God firmed it in that position. So his rebellion against God, in other words, God used his rebellion to bring about his purposes as well. So he, he used mercy in one case to bring about his purposes. He used judgment in another case to bring about his purposes. And so he he would say, to me, when you start to read this, it's just amazing how God works and how sovereign he is. He is so sovereign. That's what we should be getting out of this. So in uh, verse 19, he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? You know what they're saying? They're saying, well, if you just do all this stuff, then does that mean we don't have any free will? So how could you judge us if we're just sort of like robots fulfilling your program and your will? That's what they're saying. But he addresses that. He says, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, Endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Speaking about the Jews in Exodus. And then he says, And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So you know what he's saying now? And I encourage you to read Jeremiah 18. 1 through 6, we don't have time for that right now, but it shows you that different than when we read that, we think the vessel is something that doesn't have a choice. But if you read Jeremiah 18, you realize that the vessel does have a choice and the potter is going to be shaping that vessel according to the choice that the vessel makes. That's why this is so important to understand. But what he's saying is, this, this is amazing. So think about, think about it like this. As Paul is writing this and the Jews are rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting ultimately what God started in Genesis chapter 12. You know what that actually did? Talk about God's sovereignty you know, and they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. That actually gave the opportunity for us to be grafted in, non-Jews. So God's sovereignty is that he even used the hard-hearted Jewish reaction to Jesus to bring about this sovereign plan of redemption, not just for the Jews, but for all people. And you might remember in the book of Acts, this is, As as Paul would go and preach the good news for everybody, Jews and Gentiles, the Jews would try to kill him. They didn't want to hear that. So in verse 24, it says, Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. In verse 25 it says, As he says also in Hosea. So now he's quoting Hosea. I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who was not my beloved and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them you are not my people there they shall be called the sons of the living God so you remember Hosea was this prophet who had a wife named Gomer and she was a prostitute and and she went and had adultery against him, and, and he, was, he was told to marry her again and to go after her again. And so this is a picture of the Jews committing spiritual adultery against God, going after all these different gods, but God's pursuit of her. And here in, in context, it's saying, well, what happened? Just open the opportunity for all to be saved. Again, fulfilling the fact that all nations of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 27 Now Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, so a fulfillment of uh, prophecy, the numbers of Jews, the remnant will be saved. So the small number of those people will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left a seed, remember He didn't wipe out all the Jews before? When they were worshipping the golden calf? Well, He left a seed. He showed mercy. And that just means He was patient and long-suffering. says, we should have become like Sodom, and we would have become or been made like Gomorrah. And then here's the conclusion. So the, the conclusion basically tells us what he just said, what the whole thing is all about. So he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes, on Him will not be put to shame. And so what the Jews just couldn't get their hearts and their minds to receive was the fact that the Messiah was promised all the way back in the book of Genesis to be a blessing to all nations, not just to them. And it was going to be even to them by faith and not by works of the law. And so when I... When I read that, I just, I'm just completely blown away how God uses everything to fulfill His purposes. And now as we sit here today, He will continue to use everything to fulfill His purposes. And because of that, I just want to make sure I'm sort of in line with what He's already going to do. He's not going to deviate from His plan because of me. Better I deviate my plan to be in sync and in fellowship with what God is doing. And as as we do that, you know what, we can look at the world and we can have confidence that God is in absolute control and fulfilling His plan. And that's what makes the Bible so amazing to read daily because we see God's Word unfolding in real time and that's really exciting. But at the same time, like, like Paul is saying, there are so many people who don't know the grace of God, the love of God, and He's called us who know that He's working out this plan and understand His sovereignty. He's calling us to share the hope of the world, the hope that lies within us, Jesus Christ. And that is Romans chapter 9. So let's pray. Father, we thank You for this evening. I thank You for my brothers and sisters here. May You bless them and keep them, and make your face shine upon them, Lord, and give them peace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great night, and uh, Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.